Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill. And each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step programs that assist with recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery experience and show us that shared experience saves lives. Uh, today, my guests are members of Alanon Family Groups, and they'll be talking about living with the effects of someone else's alcoholism and how Alanon helped them to cope. So, Erin and Maria, welcome to 3CR Studio this afternoon. Thank you. Hi, Bill. Uh, so we usually start talking about you know growing up and life in the family and how you fit it in and what what you were feeling as as a child, and then look at your progression through life and how you came to Al-Anon. So, Erin, um, what what was life like for you as a child? Yeah, thanks, Bill. It was. Um Difficult. My sister was the primary alcoholic in my home. She's five years older than me. And growing up with her addiction, she started drinking and using drugs around the age of 12. And her dealing with her emotions and her changes in personality was really challenging. And and my father was absent and my mother really struggled to, to bring up four children on her own and, and really needed to work to put a roof over our heads, essentially. So I was really left to my own devices to survive. Yep. And so how did you do that? Well, I very luckily for me, there was a wonderful family that lived next door to us. Mm. So um, I was a great climber. And I climbed out my bedroom window uh, uh, over our fence and in their um, back bedroom window. And in that window, I found three wonderful girls um, who became my family and, and really just accommodated and spent as much time as I could in their home until um, their parents would say, Erin needs to go home and I'd, I'd go home and really just uh, survive the the best way that I could with the resources I had at the time and the knowledge I had at the time. Yeah. So did you fit in well at school? I did. I've always been really social and engaged with people really easily and not having a, you know, a healthy environment at home, I needed to create that somewhere. So I really did get that at school and I don't know if I just lucked out or lucked in at school, but my year level were fantastic and all of the girls at school became my really good friends and of course their families became my pseudo family as well so and i discovered a really uh i was very good at sport so that was really my saving grace for a lot of time as well so did you have fun at school sounds like it i did yeah lots of fun um but i was very naughty as well and always in lots of trouble as well and i did feel a little bit dumb you know I wasn't academic um, and didn't have that discipline so that was really difficult in the classroom at times when the teacher would ask questions or there was reading to be done out loud that was very challenging for yeah. me but socially in the play yard yeah. um, I excelled so if there was a class for socializing yeah. I would have definitely got a high distinction right okay and so what was it like living with a mum who was 
you know, obviously finding it difficult as a single parent. What mm. was that like? Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, I fought for really most of my childhood to feel that love from her and, and engage and connect with her when she was emotionally unavailable and, and couldn't do that. And, and having to work all the time, there was a lot of time when the house was empty yeah. and I was home on my own. So really feeling that aching loneliness in my bones and really searching for that love somewhere um, that I wasn't getting from that home environment. Yeah, okay. Uh, we'll swipe over to you, Maria. Um, so what was life like for you growing up? Well, I, w- I would have been one of those sort of nerdy kids at the in the classroom who didn't have lots and lots of friends <laughs> that yeah. did really well at school. It's interesting what a contrast with me and Erin. Um, my life was very different. I'm the only girl of uh, three brothers and my parents are migrants from Italy and, and they worked really hard and Dad was a builder and we used to go out on weekends and build with him. But my... Um, he wasn't a drinker, but he was a terrifying presence in my life. And um, how do you mean? Well, well, pretty much. He, he was. He. I think he just had really bad anger management issues because you. You, you know, if even if there were like a mark, he was a builder. If if the, I remember once if there was a mark, a fingerprint on the wall, say, he would get us all to put our. <laughs> hands up there to see if it matched and whoever <laughs> matched would absolutely just get a belt across the head or a kick up the backside I, look an incident I can remember I, w- I would have we were living in South Melbourne so I would have been no more than four he used to make his own sauce or you know whatever and we were handing beer bottles because we would put the sauce in beer bottles and I remember I was three or four and my brother was handing the beer bottles over the fence from next door because he owned both of those properties and one of them slipped and and hit me hit my head and I just remember touching myself and having blood I I was Mm. obviously bleeding from the head and my dad saw it and he just kicked me he just kicked me he kicked me really violently so (laughs) you know it was just it was just a a really scary environment and he he Mm. had a foul temper and we were terrified of him Mm. um did he have any alcoholism in his family I, I think I th- I know that a couple of my cousins on dad's side are alcoholics and have had drug issues actually and so there probably is something but uh his mother died quite young and his father um uh died oh, sort of a tragic death but so I don't know we never knew them they were still back in Italy but mm. he he was a social drinker and he was very charismatic and everyone loved him and he had lots of friends yep. and stuff but just terrifying with us and just completely dominated my mother. And um, so, you know, I grew up a very confused, frightened little girl who only understood fear and anger because they were the only emotions that we sort of had. (laughs) So your academic strength that was got all you through. I was good at yeah. that was all yeah. I was good at I was good at school we we're all good at school and um but I, I was average at sport and stuff but so that was the only thing I ever got any sort of validation from him was school mm. was my schoolwork mm. so yeah, did you bring kids it. home from school no no <laughs> no because my dad wouldn't sort of let that and I I didn't want and I used to sort of pretend to my I, I would not even tell my friends what we did because on the weekends we'd be out laboring with him on the building yeah. site so it was a very different life plus I had three brothers so I was 
yeah. always fighting for my own <laughs> the same sort of treatment. So that was another issue. But, you know, yeah. that was a, some of the migrant thing in the 60s, 70s growing up. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so back to you, Erin. So being not very academic at school, how did that end up? Uh, well, and just um, failing a lot and, you know, being really embarrassed and, and ashamed and just built up this sort of understanding that I was dumb and that low self-esteem, that underlying low self-esteem. So I just didn't challenge myself in those areas. Um, so I went and got an apprenticeship as a chef because I can cook. Uh, so where I, I lost that academic ability, I practically I excelled. So anything, sewing, cooking, sport, yeah. art, anything like that I am. And um, it sounds a bit arrogant, but really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what about relationships? Did you, did you form what you consider to be good relationships? Um, look, I was very social, but I, it was really, really a lot of based around me seeking that love in, in other places than, you know, I didn't have it within myself or my family. So it really was lots of filling that hole that was inside myself. And, um, you know, partners, uh, choices of partners were dysfunctional people, controlling people. Um, my mother was very controlling and I and I chose that as a partner because I I didn't know there was anything else and, and didn't believe that I deserved anything else. Yeah. So how did, how did the controlling work out in your relationships? Um, I would sort of be passive for a little while and it would build up and up and up and then I would explode and uh, come out with wonderful statements like, I hate you, I'm never seeing you again, and I would just leave. And then, of course, the loneliness would kick in and yeah. I would quickly call up and do the, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, and, and get back in there somehow when I knew that I just couldn't contain. I didn't know myself, so how could I walk in and, and be a confident, independent woman in any form of relationship? Yeah, okay. Um so what about your mum? What was your relationship like with your mum? Uh, really codependent emotionally and financially. I, um, yeah, I used to spend inappropriately, you know, just that feel good, wanting yeah. that fix and I would go out and buy things and, and didn't my, manage my money well and blamed her for that. And so I would always be going back to her for money and then going back to her for financial support as well. So... Um, I would move out of home, move back in, move out of home, move back in and, and constantly calling her for money. So it set up this really codependent yeah. relationship where I was controlled and I wasn't able to have a voice and we clashed really badly. Okay. Um, so what are, did you have any other things that you turned to to fill the hole inside you? Uh, yeah, I did. I discovered uh, drinking at 15 and uh, thought that this was the love of my life. And I really, I could not drink for a period of time. And then once I did pick up that drink, I couldn't stop. And uh, it was the same as my sister. Yeah. And I drank with my sister. We partied together and I partied with my friends and thought it was fun and thought that's what you did in your 20s. Yeah. And I didn't know that I had a problem. Yeah. 
and um, also discovered sugar as well, you know, uh, binge emotionally eating sugar to the point where I wouldn't have meals. I would just binge on sugar. And um, I would go to different milk bars to get sugar because I was ashamed. I thought the person would think that, um, you know, how could she eat that much and... Yeah, and would hide it from people yeah. and so shamed. How old, how old were you when you started? Uh, around 10 Wow. for the sugar yeah. and then around 15 for the drinking. Okay. Um, back to you, Maria. So mm. in your um, leaving home, did mm. things improve for you? Yeah, it improved. I actually left home very early. I was beaten so badly this one day when my father i was actually at uni and my father saw me kiss my boyfriend at the top of the hill goodbye and uh, i waited three days for the swelling to go down and i just packed my stuff in garbage bags and left home um yes i was the opposite i just couldn't get away fast enough um i i had you know i i sort of went through did my uni and had boyfriends and eventually met my husband and I think I was just so clueless about, you know, who I was. What I, I really had little confidence. I had good sort of friends and um, I was social, and but uh, I, I just didn't have any com- – I always just wanted to be liked. I don't know, you know, yeah. just People pretty pleasing, screwed yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I um, met my husband. I remember – admiring his collection of art books and he was a bit of an intellectual and I remember thinking oh he's he's so smart he's so smart he 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 will figure out all of my problems so yeah that was that was my the reason that I chose him and it was a very unsatisfactory marriage we had three children um but I was I was pretty um unpredictable I was pretty unsafe to be around I would fly off the handle um, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, and I think they're the two emotions that I've carried all through me, uh, all through my life, that is anger and uh, fear, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um, so was he happy to separate or not? No, no, he, he, he was so placid. He was such a placid man. He didn't drink. He, he was an introvert. He was a writer. And I remember my mum, you know, when we married, they liked him. He's a good guy. When my mum, she said this Italian term, uh, you know, she sort of knew that it wasn't really going to be a good match for me. She said, "It's we don't, you don't have the expression in English, but it's a pizza di pane. He's a piece of bread. So he was soft and malleable yeah. and I would destroy <laughs> him. And I, well, you know, I didn't destroy him, but uh, I made his life pretty unhappy. Yeah, so I, I was just, I, I just was a pretty unsafe person to be around. Um, but you know, try, trying to find my way, and and I look at my brothers and I often talk. We've all had, we've all divorced. We're all, all of us. We're all we we and we regularly talk about not knowing how to be with our partners, how cruel we've been, how oh, immature we've been, and we're all yeah. still struggling with that. You know, yeah. so it's not just me. No. I blame my dad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, listen, on that note, we might uh, take a break. I'm on. I'm in. And hear the best live pop music from around town. It's your chance to tune in, so come on, come in. Live on Thursdays, 3pm, 3CR, 8.55am. 
You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, if you'd like to listen to any one of our previous shows, we have 100, over 105 episodes available as podcasts from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash living free. If you'd like to contact us, you can call 3CR on 9419 8377 or email us at 3crlivingfree at gmail.com or we're on Twitter as 3crlivingfree. I'm chatting with Erin and Maria about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. Uh, so Erin, I think you mentioned off air that you eventually did a bit of a geographical and went overseas for a few years. So what caused you to think that was a good idea? Yeah, it's funny to think now what I was thinking at the time, <laughs> but uh, I was just, look, I was just a bit bored here. And I was doing the same drill and I really didn't want to conform with society's idea of what a woman should be. And I wanted to rebel. You know, I've always had this rebellious... um, Fun-loving streak. Yeah. (laughs) And I was dating a healthy guy. He had a lovely family and they, you know, financially secure. We were about to buy a house and it all seemed a bit too normal. And I didn't want normal. I wanted danger and excitement and drama. And so off I set with a backpack and a UK ancestry visa and $15,000 in the bank and a two-way ticket. And I set off and landed in London and, you know, a really, really lost, lonely little girl desperately seeking uh, something to fill the hole that was in my soul, and and I wanted to discover myself really. Yeah. And um, did you? In pubs and clubs, and <laughs> um, yeah, I did a bit. And look, I really did get myself into some dangerous situations. And um, you know, one situation was travelling to Turkey and met a Turkish man and he asked me to marry him after knowing him for four or five days and of course I said yes and then I went and met all the other fiancés and they were all wearing va- uh, veils and very quickly you know realised this was actually quite a dangerous situation yeah. so jumped on a plane back to Scotland where I was living at the time and of course for the next six months he'd call me every day and email me and and um, you know, potentially he was trying to get an Australian passport yeah, when I look back now. Right, but okay. Look, it was fun at the time, but, um, yeah, you know, drinking in those countries is is pretty really dangerous thing for a, for a woman to be doing. So yeah. someone was looking after me. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, so how did life go back in the UK? Yeah, uh, I was working as a chef by this stage and and loving that, working really, really hard and uh, having a degree of success in that career and I was designing dessert menus at some wonderful restaurants so that was going really well. I I worked really, really hard but partied just as hard and and started to socialise with people that wanted to do the same thing as me and that was to go out and club really. And I think for the two years that I was living in London, I don't remember seeing daylight once because it was dark when I'd get to work and dark when I'd get home and then most nights we were out in pubs or clubs. So, yeah, and and discovering uh, new things... um, doing new things so it was uh, you know pretty scary time and getting lonelier and lonelier 
and a bit paranoid by this stage and, um, you know, losing contact with a lot of my old friends at home, disconnecting yeah. from them yeah. and really isolating to a, to a degree as well and, and binging on sugar at nights and weekends to, to survive, really. Yeah, I noticed you were chefing designing dessert menus, so that must have been a real challenge. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> um, there was a, quite a few years where I don't think I ate uh, fruit and vegetables it was just all sugar wow and really l- living a life on on false confidence and nervous energy and and the yep. sugar driving all that wow. forward yeah <laughs> incredible um i'll swap back to you uh, maria so we left you you'd separated from your husband so what happened uh well i that was in my late 30s and i just remember being just so so miserable so unhappy um and and you know realizing by then that this marriage you know he, he was a good guy but you know we was so not right for each other um i i actually had 17 years of single parenthood with raising the children he, he was very involved but um that was actually probably quite a good time because I'd sort of shaken off the shackles of the husband and was able to pursue my own things and, and do a bit of work. And your dad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, well, I had nothing to do with my dad. I yeah. mean, I would visit, I would visit, um, mainly visit mum, because I was living out in the country at that point. But no, there was nothing, no, no relationship with my father. Um, yeah, I think at that point I, I was just... Um, going through raising these children and um, getting involved in things that interested me and doing a bit of study and and I had a, had a very strong network of friends and and was very mm. good community connections so but but socially um, all of my friends were big drinkers big drinkers so um, I, I was lucky in that I, I could just sort of stop after a point I'd say look I, I've had enough and and they were always a bit perplexed but so I'm very grateful that I don't have that whatever it is, whatever it is the gene or whatever it is. But um, so that was a period of just relative stability where I was single and deliberately because I didn't want anyone really influencing the way that I raise the children. So I was always a very conscientious mum, I guess. But um, yeah. So how um, did that change? What do you mean? Oh well, uh, well, I had three children. We were living in the country, and the third one, the pretty much the week that he left to go leave Mel- leave to Melbourne to go to uni, I met this person, and again, very intelligent, very intelligent, um, professional, and I thought, oh hello, he's gonna, he's perfect, he's gonna fix yeah. my life. <laughs> oh well, he's gonna. Um, what actually, I remember thinking at the time, he'll give me stability in my old age because he was quite well off. Um, you know, so my my first husband, my husband was going to, you know, answer my problems, and this one was going to um, solve all my financial issues. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, he he was a lot more. He was Irish. He was a drinker, not a drunk, but a drinker, and uh, he was as volatile as I was, and it was just, it it was t- tortuous, um, and f- and that lasted four years. Um, and I, I'm quite embarrassed when I look back at, at at the way these stupid fights escalated. It's just madness. You know, I remember driving from Warrnambool to Melbourne three in the morning one night, you know, because, and, and you know, it was just awful. I, I, and and I, I guess what I think of is I did not have the tools to 
be able to negotiate a relationship with a romantic partner. I, no, I just didn't no have compromise. To. Yeah, mm, I was yeah. Again, I was unsafe. I was unpredictable. Um, yeah, you know, it's I, I sort of felt I really anyway. It's not a, nothing's a waste. It's just what it is, and that's who I was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so back to you, Erin. So why did you leave to come home from overseas? Sort of the reasons why I left. I just was t- sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> and just it was like I was going around and around in circles in this in this rat race trying to get out and, and I would see these solutions and I'd jump into them and I'd say, I'm going to India and I'm going to study yoga and be a guru, you know, a yoga yeah. guru with a yogi. And it would work for a little while and then I'd probably just and then I'd just end up back in the same place again. Yeah. And then I'd get a new solution or a new partner or and it was just that same thing over and over again and, and you uh, you articulated it perfectly when you said that geographical that I was just going to a different country, picking up the same type of people, doing the same thing again and expecting a different result. And I think the the clouds were just parting and I started to see the insanity in what my behaviour was and I actually had no one to blame anymore. Uh, you know, I was an adult now that, you know, I'd spent a life blaming other people for my behaviours and my emotions and my feelings. Yeah. And it was catching up with me, and I was uh, with a with an, uh, a partner who was an everyday drinker and drug user, and I thought London was the problem. So if we got out of London, then we'd be okay. And we went and lived in Malaysia; it was the same. Then we lived in Thailand; it was the same. And then New Zealand; it was the same. And um, I came home because. I wanted the things that I'd left Australia for, the stability of a home, uh, friendships, a, a partner, and all of those things that I'd run away from for so long, I started to feel I wanted them, but had no understanding how I was going to get it and how I was going to be happy. Yeah. So what, what changed when you got home? Um, my sister was sober. Oh, the right. girl, yeah. the girl that I drank with. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> hang in a minute. How did that happen? That wasn't in the plan, and uh, she was in my ear. She started to plant the seed in my ear, and uh, she later said that she had the five-year plan on me. And, <laughs> and um, of course, I came back blaming mum for everything, and dad, and my brother, and and my sister. And she wasn't doing that anymore. She had a new solution. And I saw a spark in her eyes. And um, one day she suggested I, I might want to go to an Al Anon meeting. And I didn't want to go. But I had no options left. I'd tried everything. And I, I don't even think that I went to that meeting knowing that I was going to that meeting for me. I, I think on some level I was sort of going with her. She said, let's go. And I went, okay. And, um, yeah, that, that, that night... Um, changed my life has completely changed my life okay so what what sort of things were you feeling when you went uh disconnected to the world lost lonely i was depressed i had been talking to doctors about antidepressants 
I was had gone to an anxiety social phobia course um, because I thought that was my issue and I just was feeling that this was the end that I had to do something radical or that uh, you know the suicidal thoughts were coming in and I was thinking that really that was my only option left okay well listen we might take a quick break there accent women it seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, I'm talking with Erin and Maria, and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Alaron family groups. Uh, so, Maria, I think we left you... You'd met a nice guy, but you're in lots of fights. So <laughs> how did that end? Well, we just, you know, one fight too many and, uh, and I walked out. It was actually three days before Christmas. I remember <laughs> it well. Um, in 2016, I think. Um, yeah, and so I, I had a year and a half or so of, of singlehood, but uh, my circumstances were such that I was really, really thinking that I needed to have a, a partner in my life. Again, I'm looking to my old age. I mean, I'm in my 60s, so... I, I didn't want to be alone and um, and uh, so I was I sort of licked my wounds and sort of got over that and um, um, at that time I was also caring for elderly parents as well and I was living away from my home in my community in, in Warrnambool I was living in Melbourne and um, I I met a person who was a AA member and um, I quite like the look of him. Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I quite like the look of him. But as soon as I, uh, you know, very up, he was very upfront and told me he was an alcoholic, and uh, and I, my immediate reaction was to run a mile because we, as Italian migrant families, we really looked down on, you know, drinkers and gamblers and stuff. And he was this Aussie. Oh well, no, he wasn't an Aussie at all. He was, um, he was a migrant himself, but from Britain. And uh, I thought, actually, he's been sober for how many years? Or I think it was about fifteen. I thought maybe, maybe he's he's got some wisdom to share. So I'll I'll sort of stick around a bit. And I'm st- I did I stuck around. So you know he was a th- he didn't have the money he didn't he, but he sort of had the brains but he also had the history that I was really intrigued by. That's how I got that's how I got connected with an alcoholic, an alcoholic. So was so that a good relationship? Four years ago. Uh, it started off good. I was on my best behaviour for about six, seven months and then he tweaked and he said, he said, I thought I thought you were normal. <laughs> and, and then I realised that you're not. You're, mad, you're quite mad. I said, oh, yeah. And um, so, my, you know, I, I wasn't able to hide the, the madness that was there. And and then things started going pear-shaped. So I was starting to, 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 to you know, default to all my old patterns. Uh, the anger and the fear came out and um, 
it was very troubling for him. Very, and I knew he was an AA. He's a very committed AA member, and he loved. You know, we we often talked about it, but uh, I. It wasn't until he suggested, did I want to walk, accompany him to an Al-Anon meeting? And I remember thinking, oh, you know, the things you've got to do to keep your partners happy. <laughs> you know, I'll do it because yeah. it's a sign that I care about him. And I did. And as you, as Erin um, said, I think my life changed. And that was, that was through, uh, nearly three years ago. I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting yeah. with him. He 12-stepped me. In right, so what, what was it like going to your first meeting after being mad for so long? Well, well, I guess a few things. First of all, uh, the God thing bothered me a little bit because yeah. um, you know, I was a rabid atheist back then. Um, but what really struck me was the um, the I've never I've never been in a place where people just totally stripped down their facades and all that external stuff and speak tr- the tr- truthfully about Honesty, themselves. Yeah. It was, uh, and I remember being quite moved by some of these women's stories and and I remember just watching this woman next to me. She just didn't say a word, but she just cried all the way through it. And I, I'd, I've never experienced anything like that. And um, oh, they said six meetings and I thought, oh, well, just to prove to him that I, you know, I care about him and I'll, yeah. you know, make these sacrifices. I'll go, but... um. I, I soon came to realise that died. I needed, I absolutely needed this. It was, it, I was desperate for something and this seemed perhaps to be what I needed. Yeah. So what changed in your life as a result? Well, it's been, it's been very slow. You know, I've, for a start, I, I believe in a higher power and I never did. I, I didn't, I had no concept of that. I would, ref, I'm sort of a sciencey person and I refuse to think like that, but um, it's, and that's given me so much comfort. Um, I don't just sit back and just wait for the world to happen. I, I, um, I know that um, I have to, you know, do things. What I think the biggest thing that's happened for me is it's removed a lot of the anxiety that I, the fear that uh, that yeah. sort of dominated and, and steered my life. Uh, I'm much this. I'm much more able to see. See how see how I react, how I respond to what goes on in the world around me. And um, I think I just have a lot more insight into what it is that how I sort of get on in my life. And I, 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 I just have lots more insight and a lot of my fear has gone. Uh, I don't have the anxieties that I used to have. The anger's still there, but it's really, really um, becoming much more manageable. Yeah, I think once you can see it, once you understand it and why, mm. I think it's, it's good. Mm. So how did it affect your relationships then with other people? I think, I think what it's done is it's made, it's, it's, I've actually had to drop this facade that I've had all my life, this wanting to be accepted and wanting to be liked and being sort of almost chameleon-like, changing who I am for whoever it is that I the want audience, to impress. Yeah. And I've become mm. much realer. I've I've let some people go, and I've created new friendships. So, um, and in my work, in my work environment, professionally, I'm just a lot more. Uh, I back myself a lot more. I'm not so afraid of being punished or being found out as a, you know, an imposter. You know, I, um, all those things. I I just walk slightly taller now, and um, 
uh, I back myself, and that's that's a big big thing for me. It's a good feeling. Yeah, it's a, it's a amazing feeling. Yeah. Uh, so back to you, Erin. Um, so your sister took you to Al-Anon. So what was it like for you coming into Al-Anon and realizing that it wasn't everybody else that was you that was the problem? Hmm. What's that realization like? <laughs> Well, confusing, and and I I was sort of in a at that crossroads of I didn't feel out in the world with my old ideas, but I didn't have a solution yet, and so it was that right in the middle, and you know really take away that dysfunctional behaviour. What I was left with was, uh, you know. A, a lot of stuff came up for me, stuff that I'd hidden for a long time and really that's when the depression, the suicidal thoughts, uh, the fear came and all of those defects of character really came to light for me and I was confused for quite some time. Did you feel like Alanon fitted you, what you needed? Yeah, I, I do believe that that first meeting uh, I was tapped on the shoulder and said, this is your solution, come with us. And I really did feel that that it was a long-lasting thing, but it took time for me to catch up with it. Yeah, okay. Um, and what do you think changed that and allowed you to catch up? What was the What's the mechanism? Uh, well, I just... Um, people just didn't want to listen to my crap <laughs> in the fellowship. They just didn't. You know, all the, the things that... All the blame. Yeah. yeah, the blame, the denial and everything that I'd lived on for so many years. People just didn't want to hear it and they would revert it back to me. And uh, getting a sponsor straight away and starting to work those steps straight away was really fundamental for my recovery. Yeah. And um, the sponsor that I had said the only way is to work the program and, and to start working those steps. That is, those steps will will teach you how, through the working the steps, you will learn how to love yourself, um, start to heal relationships and, and uh, create a, start to work on a relationship with a power greater than yourself. And it was those steps that were the turning point for me. So um, what does a sponsor help help you see in yourself? Mm. Well, a, a sponsor gives me a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, and what I'd done my whole life was gone back to my thinking to try, my sick thinking, I should say, to try and fix my thinking. And now when I say that out loud, yeah. I can see how insane that is, but yeah. I had nothing else. So when I get to call my sponsor and, and talk with my sponsor, she brings me out of my thinking and brings me back to the program and gives me a different perspective on things, a perspective that I can't see for myself through yeah. my own thinking. Yeah. And that's really possible because you trust someone and you're willing to open yourself and talk about your problem yep. and then they can help you understand it. Mm. They don't solve it. No. no, no. They just pass on their experience yeah. uh, that their sponsor's given them. Yeah. And then when I talk to my sponsees, I can, when I speak, I hear my sponsor's words and I think, where did that come from? Because I can't give myself the solution, but I can pass on my experience to others. And through me sharing my experience, they can see the solution a lot clearer yeah. than their own thinking. Yeah. 
Um, so how's it changed your life, being in a fellowship? Yeah, well, I mean, the fellowship's incredible. I have built these uh, relationships and a closeness with people that I never knew existed. And they understand me. You know, I can walk into a room, uh, a, a meeting full of Al-Anon members and feel the love and the nurturing that I've been seeking my whole life. Um, and it's a support network for me uh, that I never really had before, that I, I've always sought that solution for my holiness through external things quickly. Um, as the fellowship gives me, it's been a slow burn over 18 years. Okay. Um, so has it been a, an easy path? No, not at all. It's really has been really challenging and I've had some difficult times in my life. That sister that brought me into the program, unfortunately, after long-term not drinking and drugging, um, started drinking and, and using drugs again and suicided in 2010. And that was a really challenging time. And I had disconnected from her previous to that through the Al-Anon program and, and guidance from my sponsor from a long-term abuse. And that was really hard. And, and I don't have a lot of contact with my family because when I see them, I slip into that old behavior mm. and become that old person. So there are times in the fellowship where it is difficult to be the healthy person in the room. And I know that sounds strange to say, but mm. it's so easy to slip into the cross-talking and the gossip and, and even at work. There's yeah. times where I have to sit in different areas at work because I don't want to get in, involved in the office politics. So that is challenging at times. And, yeah, recovery is not – my best day in recovery – my worst day in recovery is still – my best day, not in recovery, but at times it, it, it is hard to see uh, how difficult it can be. Yeah. So what about relationships? How have they improved? Yeah, well, all of those old friendships that I had developed and, and the behaviours that I developed in those relationships, I've been able to go back and amend, make amends for my behaviour. And to let go of resentment is incredible. And, and we've reconnected with a lot of those old friends. I, The same as Maria, I've, I've let a lot of friendships go because I'm not the person I want to be when I'm with them. And uh, I've made wonderful new friendships. And where I uh, start conversations with I love you and end them with I love you, I hug people. I have this incredible openness of my heart that I never knew that I could manage. I, I met a partner 14 years ago um, who I would have classified as boring uh, because he had a job. He didn't. He wasn't an addict. Uh, he was financially secure, he's kind, he's considerate. He turned up to dates on time and I always thought that was a bit boring and, and now I just, that's, um, you know, healthy to me now and, yeah. um, you know, I love that and I've surrounded myself with these people who love me and love themselves and have a spiritual path. Mm. Okay, thanks. Uh, and what about you, Maria? So what's relationships like with your friends and family? Uh, well, as I sort of said before, I, I just am a, a lot. I, I don't imagine. I, I, I don't. I, I realise now, looking back, that I used to change for people, 
and try to be like them or be liked by them. And I don't, I just don't do that anymore. Um, and that's so liberating. So much energy goes into fear and anxiety and wondering what people think of you. So I can sort of just be myself now and um, not only with the al people, my friends that I've formed through al but just in general. I, I just am so much more confident. Um, you know, I've had lots of therapy through the years. I've been to psychologists and, and there's nothing, there's nothing like this when you can go virtually any day of the week and, and get this sort of, um, it's to me it's like mental therapy. I, I just love it. The readings every day, the gratitude journal at night, the talking to, to Al-Anon people. It's, it's like every day, every day that practicing, um, that to me is the magic, to me what makes it really work that every single day there's another little something to remind me or another message or something from Eleanor. It's that's it's just great. I, I'm just such an advocate for it now. I I will I hope that I never ever stop Eleanor because I need it. I need it for my sanity. Okay. Thank you. Um, if you'd like to contact Eleanor Family Groups, you can do so by phone on one three hundred 252666 or you can go online at alanon.org.au uh, That's about all we've got time for today so I'd like to thank Erin and Maria for coming in and sharing their Alanon Family Group's recovery experience with us. Thank you both. You're very welcome. Thanks, Bill. Uh, hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from gambling addiction and we'll be joined by a member of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, stay tuned to 3CR. Uh, we've got more programs coming up after our show. Thanks for listening to Living Free Show today. And to take us out, we've got a song called uh, Night Day by Sarah Blesco.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.